Hello and welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett and tonight joining me once again is John Hudson. How you been doing, Mr. Hudson? I am doing okay. How's the COVID hell treating you? Well, my hair looks good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're growing the, uh, the uh, what, 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 uh, contagion beard? Or I like the... to call this the Unabomber. That's the style that... <laughs> the Unabomber look. Yeah, I, I'm cultivating quite well. So that everyone you know will uh, trust you implicitly. Exactly. Yes, I've been course. working on my, um, my manifesto in the cabin and... <laughs> We've all been working on our manifestos. <laughs> God save us. If you stare at the internet long enough, you'll start seeing them just tumble out of people, for God's sake. But, uh, no, no, no. I mean, we've, uh, you're working from home, right? I am. So you're rarely getting out, I assume. Not real often um, at all. My wife is working one week at home, and she works at a nursing home. So oh, she'll yeah. be home one week and then there one week. And okay. most of what she does is more administrative, so she can do it at home, but... Not everything, and they've been rotating the staff. So if somebody gets sick, not everybody's exposed to them at one time. So. Yeah. But I've been home the whole time, and I think I've um, last time I filled up my gas tank was in March, and that is not a not a joke. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Ugh. I used to fill it up once every four days with my commute in and out yeah. of Nashville. So. Well, that's uh. Huh. Are you able to uh, use this time wisely for uh, being a movie fan? I think so. Yeah, I, I've been watching a lot of them. Um, what I've been doing is, because I don't have my 90-minute drive home or drive to work, so yeah. I've been, um, you know, I clock out and, all right, I'm done. I'll have dinner. The woman gets in there and fixes me some dinner. And then, <laughs> and then all right, woman. And you don't even have to threaten her or anything. Not not, not much. She's hungry, <laughs> hungry at that point. And having me home puts a little extra fear in her. So, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Of yeah, course. yeah, yeah especially with, especially with the beard. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> the the only bright spot that you could think of with the Unabomber beard is that Unabomber, you know, didn't live with anybody, so he didn't have anybody to frighten. So that's true. Well, that's why he blew people up. <laughs> that was his. That was his whole motivation. <laughs> that's really was that it. Was his, that was his. That was true. That was his true motive. Let's put it that way. I think so. I think I read that in in his fourteenth manifesto, <laughs> the one written from the hole in the ground. <laughs> Instead of the instead of the cave and instead of the cabin. Yeah, but yeah, movie wise, I, it's just been real scattershot. Oh, okay. For me, what I'll do is um, sometimes if I'm lazy, I'll just say, "Oh, what have I got in the mail lately that I haven't taken upstairs yet?" <laughs> what's what's laying nearby? Yeah, like the other night I watched Arrow's Deadly Manor, just yeah. because I got it in the mail and hadn't taken it upstairs. Not so. upstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't watched. I watched that one a couple of years ago, and I, I remember it being kind of, eh, kind of okay. But of course, I still bought the damn Blu-ray, just like all of our addicted asses. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, let's see. I've watched just a lot of times. I'll go upstairs and I'll look at the a random shelf and say, "I'm going to pull something off that shelf," which uh -huh. helps narrow down the choices. <laughs> And boy, are we talking some first world geek problems here. Yeah, no shit. That'll so narrow down the choices, to... and then I'll go down the row, like, okay, what's some a Blu-ray I haven't watched yet? Or, no, no, no. Well, that's, and that's, so that, that's it's valid, a good way yeah. to do it. Um, I've also even gone into the old DVD collection, which... I've, I've done that as well. It's going back into the Stone Ages <laughs> compared to most, but probably the coolest movie that I watch is one I haven't seen in 20 years is a movie called Fingers with Harvey Keitel. Oh, I've heard of that, but I'm just It's really it. good. Yeah. It's really good. It's a little small 70s, only in the 70s character piece where Harvey Keitel plays an aspiring concert pianist who 
has an uncle, I think it was his uncle, who's a small-time crime figure, and Harvey will occasionally do some collections for gambling debts. Ah. And that's basically the plot. It's just more of a character kind study. Kind of a slice of life kind of thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and Kaitel in the 70s, you know, not much he could do was wrong. He's, so. yeah. The, the um, Kaitel went through that weird phase in the uh, the 80s where it seemed like either movie producers or Kaitel didn't know what to do with him. I don't yeah. know which it was. That's where he ended up making, um, ended up making some, some films in Europe and some, some odd ones, if memory serves. It's really strange considering the strength of his output in the 70s. And then I, I guess he, he just never became like a huge star. So I guess to a, to a degree, it's that weird area, especially when you get into the 80s, where you're more of a character actor than you are a, like a star with drawing mm-hmm. power. Because he's definitely not, he, he doesn't have the face to be, uh, you know, a, a marquee movie idol. Right. So he, he, he is a, definitely a character actor, but at, the, but at the same time, that means that past a certain point in your career movies are actually being written with you in mind people coming to you and saying i want you to play this character as opposed to will you read this script and see if see if there's some you know some some way we can put you in this because mm-hmm. at least your name has some value it, it got kind of weird there for him for a while and i think until probably until bad lieutenant bad, it was the bad lieutenant reservoir dogs yeah. one two punch that brought him back yeah yeah that put him back on like i guess at least hollywood's map yeah which it's really strange. It's strange how careers work like that. It's 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 bizarre. Well, this is a fun. Well, fun isn't exactly the right word, but it's a it's a really great little movie. Lots of great shots of seventies New York. Yeah. You know, if if you watch Taxi Driver and Mean Streets and this, you'd be you'd, <laughs> afraid afraid to go there. Afraid to go there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that's probably my um, probably the best one that I've watched out of the random. Let me just grab something off the shelf. Yeah, I don't know what I would name as the best thing I've seen in the past month or so. I mean, there've been some uh, there've been some nice surprises and some weird out of left field revisits. I have no idea. Well, for, oh, well, for instance, I uh, through the use of the tube of you mm-hmm. uh, or or YouTube as some people put it, uh, I did delve into some of the '70s TV movies that I'd still never gotten around to seeing, uh, and that was that's always a bit of an eye opener because. Um, at, the, at their best, you know, there are a lot of them that people kind of know in general, like, you know, the Nice Stalker and the Nice Strangler and some of the bigger ones, the ones that are, you know, somehow or another have kind of remained resonant across the decades. But then there are all these other ones that in some cases are almost as good, but just, you know, there's nobody out there really championing them except for people who are just fanatics on TV movies. So things like uh, Satan's School for Girls, uh, which does not sound like it would be a TV movie. <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, Crowhaven Farm. Oh man, uh, there's this one that I saw with uh, Robert Culp and Eli Wallach, which is this almost this two character two, two character play uh, in this in this isolated um, snowbound research center. Plays at times a little bit like Carpenter's The Thing, hmm. and uh, you know, hour and fifteen minute long little movie, and just tight tight as a bowstring, man, and really well done. It's called a A Cold Night's Death, and just sit up there on YouTube, and it's really well well worth seeing. It really is a really uh, well done, well acted. Of course, like I say, you really only got two or three actors on screen at mm-hmm. all for the entire running time, and uh, got a got a got an ending that uh, you don't see coming. I have to say. Nice. And yeah, I used to love, I was a, a wee little tyke, but I watched anything horror when I was a kid. Yeah. So anything even sort of 
out, out of the normal I would go for watching those TV movies, and I love them. In fact, funny enough that you mentioned that, something else I watched in the last two, three weeks was the uh, Blu-ray of Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Oh, yeah. And it, the Blu-ray looks incredible. Yeah. And um, ah, that movie's so great. There's a reason people who saw that remember it. It's still pretty darn spooky. It's a terrifying little TV movie. That yeah, That's another yeah. one of those great 70s TV movies that stuck with everybody, like Bad Ronald and mm-hmm. a bunch of films like that. Yeah, and in fact, I just saw... Um, I guess a week or so ago, that Killdozer is getting a Blu-ray release. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> There's one. What, what I love about Killdozer is that for a lot of years, I guess it was like the 80s, there would be people who would describe Killdozer to someone who'd never seen it, and people would think it was a joke. That, you like, were that can't be this, real. This. No. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, if you if you were a real geek, you had the, you had the you had the ability to step up and be a little bit more interactive and present them with a copy of the short story Killdozer mm-hmm. from by Ted Sturgeon that it was based on, and go no 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 seriously this short story became a TV movie I am not kidding you and and now I think uh, it's been it's been easier to see because of YouTube for about the past decade or so yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, there are still going to be people who, until they see it, are just going, there's, no, there's absolutely no way this is a good film. Yeah, that, well, they're wrong. They're wrong. They're completely wrong. Um, I remember there being this joke, Killdozer 8-bit video game that was up on the internet <laughs> for a while, a long time back. That doesn't sound like a joke to me. That sounds great. <laughs> well, that's just it. I mean, I don't, know that it, I, don't think that, I don't know that it was done much more as a joke, simply because, I mean, like, what were they going to do? Yeah. <laughs> what was the game going to entail, you know? But you know, he's like uh, a piece of a, a piece of earth moving equipment becomes possessed mm-hmm. by an alien creature and starts killing people. We don't know why. Do we need to know? We why? We don't need to know why. Uh, that's not the important part. The important part is there's a killer bulldozer. <laughs> and damn it, you are screwed because you're trapped on an island with it. So. That's right. Yeah, the the, the joys of uh, the the various and sundry things. Like I say, I'm going down that path. I mean, that was three TV movies. I think in a single day. Where I think we just kind of ingested them because it was just like, it was just, oh, we can just watch another one and push another, push the button and watch another one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go so quickly and they're all so tight, you're not going to be bored. And I mean, I guess you could be, but if they're well made, you don't have time to be bored. And then I'm, uh, I'm, I'm watching some of the more obscure things that I've collected over the years from, shall we say, uh, uh, non-legal locations. Some what? Yes, yeah, some some YouTube, not not stuff that's not popping up on YouTube. Stuff that uh, is like you're, it's your trash that I've never gotten around to watching. One called uh, Two Males for Alexa, which is a Euro seventies Euro trash thing that uh, it's really kind of a, a, a really tight little drama. Uh, with a murder or two thrown in there. But the reason to see it is, of course, because of the cast, uh, including Emma Cohen and uh, Rosable uh, Neary. Mm-hmm. And uh, both of those are absolutely gorgeous women. And the uh, the story is, is good. It's actually a pretty good little movie, but it's, it's one of those that I've kind of collected and had off to the side for a long time. And just, it's like, oh, well, now I've, I guess I have time to get to this. Let me go ahead and watch this movie. So there's been a lot, there's been a lot of things like that. Well, another one that I watched that um, I've had for a couple of years and finally broke out was uh, from Vinegar Syndrome, uh, Don't Answer the Phone. Have you seen that one? <laughs> yes. That is not a great movie. Well, I remember when I got it, I was at a convention and the guys from Vinegar Syndrome were set up and I'm looking at their table and I'm like, hey, you like sweaty fat guys? You need to buy this. <laughs> <laughs> and really... If that enticement gets you to watch that film, it's your own fault. Well, it did work, but as I watched it, it was so distracting because the killer looked so much like Black Francis from the Pixies. (laughs) 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 
that's who that's I kept, a good point. I you're, kept you're not seeing. wrong. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. Yeah. So that's that's a little bizarre. Although although that guy is a character actor who's been in a, a blue bajillion movies, but mm-hmm. I can't even remember his name. I can't either. But he sure looked like he should. And he was a sweaty, creepy asshole in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Don't answer the phone. Uh, yeah. That's. It's not a. It's weird. It's one of those movies that you feel is probably like a one and one and done. You watch it and you're you know you're probably never mm-hmm. going to feel the urge to watch it again. But then the, the thing pops up because it's in your collection and you think, should I rewatch that? I mean, I did buy it. Yeah, and there's something there's something about it that's memorable. It's just yeah, it's yeah. pretty pretty skanky. I mean, it's it's, <laughs> it's got sleaze. some grime to it. Yeah, grimy. That not yeah. sleazy, but grimy. Yeah, there's a yeah. You're right. That's about that's the best word for it. But. Mm-hmm. I tell you what, uh, we came here not to talk about sleazy, grimy things from the 70s or 80s. Uh, we do that fairly frequently anyway, <laughs> no matter what the yes, topic. Before we push p- push record. <laughs> yeah, before before we do anything else, we got to get that out of the way. It's like a it's like a purging. It's like you've mm-hmm. binged and now it's time to purge. Uh, but this time around, uh, instead of doing what you and I normally do, which is talk about Antonio Margariti films, I uh, decided to let kind of let you off and pick something else, someone something well outside of the range of what we normally do, which is what you did. Uh, we're covering a silent movie tonight, mm-hmm. which is something I had never really considered doing on the show, mainly because it really makes it almost impossible for me to cl- to grab any clips. Well, I have one soundbite for you to throw in later. Oh, okay. But which I'll talk about in a bit. <laughs> okay. But other than that, yeah, I thought the same thing. It's like, huh? Going to be hard to. Uh... What am I going to do to illustrate points? <laughs> how am I going <laughs> to? I'm not going to throw in just a bit of the flavor of this. I mean, it's like I put the music in, but it's like there's like a couple of different scores you can choose from. So mm-hmm. it's like what none of them are really identifying features of necessarily any one person's viewing of this film. So what do I do? But nevertheless, we're going to watch. Uh, well, we've watched and we're going to talk uh, for a little while about a silent movie by Harold Lloyd from 1927 called The Kid Brother. So hang on one second. We'll come back and uh, dive into that. I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Harold 
Harold Lloyd's film The Kid Brother from 1927. Now, I was vaguely familiar with Harold Lloyd, but I've never really dived deeply into his films. Uh, I've seen a couple of the shorts he produced. I mean, he produced a lot of shorts. He was in a lot of shorts, even in the uh, the teens, I mm-hmm. think, with uh, Hal Roach Studios. Hal Roach, yeah. In fact, he and Hal Roach started... When Hal Roach started his studio, Harold Lloyd was the first guy he hired. Well, the uh, the Harold Lloyd stuff that I remember was the, the weird thing about his hand and uh, the uh, amazing ability that his films had to be kinetic. They were really, really, they were almost seemed to be structured almost around how many times can we ingest a chase scene in a film before the audience just loses their minds and falls on the floor, mm-hmm. uh, which seems to be a good description of big chunks of the kid brother as well. I did not realize just how popular he was uh, because he was the most highly paid filmmaker of the 1920s. He was well off. Oh, yeah. Well, he was smart because he and um, Roach started off together. And as soon as Harold was able to get ownership of his films and start his own production company, he did. So he was basically an ind- independent filmmaker. And his later films would get distributed through Paramount like this one did. Yeah. But he owned them. And, of course, pocketed most of the profits and invested smartly, you know, and unlike, say, Buster Keaton, who invested most of his money down at the bar, Harold <laughs> yeah. bought uh, Beverly Hills real estate. <laughs> which which never, never makes anybody any money. No, it's a terrible <laughs> idea. Terrible investment. <laughs> who would have thought? Yeah, awful, awful idea. <laughs> but, but so Harold Lloyd... Was fairly impressive, and I was uh, I was I was stunned to watch this and to realize I had I had for a long time thought that he was a guy one of those guys who had done all of his own stunts, but it turns out that's not true. He did a lot of the stuff that you see him doing on screen, but he also had a really good stuntman who did mm-hmm. the more dangerous stuff as well. Yeah, which uh, actually made me respect him a little bit more because it's like you can't you can't Jackie Chan this forever. You end up with a hole in your head. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the uh, films that I had seen up till now, like I say, or years and years ago, I've, I'm much more familiar with uh, Buster Keaton's output. Um, and I'm going to say something that's probably fairly controversial here. Uh, I, I'm not a huge Charlie Chaplin fan. Uh, I can admire his films, and I've enjoyed the one, you know, I've enjoyed them. But for me, the the stuff that I enjoy, uh, the comedies, I should say, that I enjoy from the silent era are more along the lines of Buster Keaton and what I'm seeing when I look at a Harold Lloyd story. Well, I'm right there with you. Um, Chaplin is, he's fine. You know, it's not like I said, oh, this guy stinks. But no, nothing like I've that. I've never been a huge fan. And actually, Dana Gould, the comedian, said once that, I think it was him, that he was showing his daughter some old films. And she was not a Chaplin fan. And, and he said, well, why, why do you not, not like Charlie Chaplin? He tries too hard to make me like him. Oh, well, that, yeah, that's a good and way it's to like, put wow, it. Wow, that, yeah, that sums it up pretty well. Yeah, whereas with Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, it's kind of a different flavor of the same attitude, which is, I'm just doing this. Mm-hmm. And you're either on board or you're not. Yeah. I'm not reaching out to you, I'm just doing things. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I always admired about Keaton. And there's, a, like I say, a lot of that flavor in what I'm seeing of Harold Lloyd as well, which is, I am constructing this intricate Rube Goldberg style strange thing that's going to get wound up and then run like a top until I'm exhausted and you're exhausted as an audience. And hopefully everybody is along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot I get a lot of joy out of that. And I get a lot of joy out of this. The Kid Brother is a blast. I had never seen it before you decided that that's what we would cover. And I have to say, uh, the 
you know, the, the story, we'll, we'll do a, a quick run through a plot synopsis here in a second, but the story is uh, fairly standard for what I suspect is most of these types of films. It certainly uh, plays out like a number of silent comedies of varying lengths that I've seen over the years. So, the, you know, the, you've got, uh, it's, it's a combination of comedy, action, and romance. And the mm-hmm. action and the comedy are pretty much in, in, inextricably tied together. And my enjoyment of these movies almost always tends to bend itself around how well the action and the comedy are tied together. In other words, if they're doing the same thing at the same time, if it's a lot of kinetic action that's also funny most of the time, then you probably got me one over. I'm probably mm-hmm. going to be a big fan of whatever you're doing. And that certainly fits in this. But um, I will say that's not the only thing to admire about this movie. I like the uh, the settings. Like that, that weird, By the time we get to that weird uh, kind of uh, banked ship that's sitting, that's sitting there, because the I, I don't know, if that, it seems like a long time for the tide to have been out. <laughs> mm-hmm. That boat that's sitting there, so you're on this slanted plane any on any deck that you're on in that in that little in that boat is it big enough to be called a ship? I don't know. It's the... a sh- it was a ship, yeah. Okay, and it's and it's on the river. They were at, yeah on a river, so there wouldn't I guess been a tide necessarily, but it looks like it just came aground and yeah was beached there and very strange. But nevertheless, the uh, I d- I would love to know if uh, they stumbled across that as a setting and decided to use it, or if that was something that they had to arrange to have themselves. Well, I. Unlike most of these movies where, where I come over and I'm a complete idiot, I know a little bit about this Oh, well, cool, 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 because I know very little. I, wow. I, I went in just learning. I spent my time just learning about uh, the, the specialness and weirdness of Harold Lloyd instead of mm-hmm. the specifics of this film, so sing out. Well, I guess before we even talk about the movie, I we were talking earlier about how I got into Harold Lloyd okay. the way that I did, and um, and all started... When I was a young boy, but it really did. Um, <laughs> should I should I put the, the the music under this the the little rascals? Well, that actually had a little bit to do with it. When I was a kid, and a lot like you, you were kind of at the tail end of that generation. But old comedy we watched every day. You know, we grew oh, up after watching. School, yeah, I, you know, I'd watch the Three Stooges every morning on the Bozo Show, or after school you'd have. Yeah. Abbott and Costello or The Little Rascals. And for a while, Channel 4 here ran Laurel and Hardy, their early sound shorts. So I was always a fan of old comedy. And I slowly started to find... I knew there was silent comedy out there and was interested in it because I, I liked all the old comedy stuff that I'd seen. Channel 5 here and out in Nashville used to run W.C. Fields every Sunday afternoon. So I'd see those. And okay. The uh, PBS station out of Evansville... Because I could get Nashville and Evansville public television, they started showing Harold Lloyd's World of Comedy on Sunday nights, which was a half an hour sort of compilation of Harold Lloyd clips. And in retrospect, it wasn't all that great. It was a guy was a now Harold had to buy a birthday cake for his girlfriend, and then they would show a, you know a little bit of whatever film, a short or a feature, but okay. it was enough to give you a taste of it, and it had a really catchy little theme song. Um, which I still remember after all these years. It's probably the only sound bite we'll be able to get in this episode to be that theme song. (laughs) 
after Channel 9 ran that, it was apparently pretty popular, they started showing his features. And they started every Sunday night, and this was great. They, they ran them in order. They would show a couple of shorts for the shorter features, uh -huh. and then show a feature, starting with his first one, Sailor Made Man. And they ran all the way through the sound ones. So I got to watch every Harold Lloyd film in order, you know, once a week for however many weeks that went through. And wow. I was just glued to them. And I was maybe, well, in fact, I know how old I was because I remember watching one of them the night before I started high school because I was watching a Harold Lloyd movie and my dad was like, are you excited? And I'm like, I'm nervous, Dad. You know, I'm going to a new school and all this. But I remember that conversation while I watched a Harold Lloyd film. So I would have been 13. Okay, so you saw The Kid Brother a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a long time ago. And it, I mean, I love Harold Lloyd, but that one resonates a lot with me because I grew up in the country and... My dad was a big burly guy, and I was not a big burly boy. So <laughs> there are certain things, and I'm not saying my life was like Harold Hickory because it wasn't, but there was a certain amount of my dad's a big, strong, tough guy, and I'm not, and I would love to have his approval. And, yeah. you know, it's one of some of those universal themes of a boy and his dad, and that one did resonate a little bit more with me than some might have. I never had to climb, a, say, a tall building and hang off a clock. <laughs> to stay out of trouble but very few people get that opportunity or are forced into that yeah, opportunity but, but there were times where it's like gosh i wish i could I'm, i wish i could impress my dad you know that that did happen so a okay. kid brother did sort of resonate pretty strongly like i say i'm always i came i came to to silent comedy in, in a weird way because in a lot of in a lot of different areas around the country here in the u.s there were uh different pbs stations that would feature uh, like silent movies at, at like one night a week or and mm -hmm. some, some, something like that. So that's how a lot of people, uh, when they're younger, got introduced. Their local PBS station would. You know, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was some kind of national show that that PBS did, or if it was something that each PBS show like took upon themselves to to arrange. But there was a lot. There was a lot of that because the more you talk to people who grew up seeing this stuff, it was almost almost always. The silent stuff was almost always on a PBS station yeah. that was showing it. And so you get this uh, chance to see this stuff at an early age. And, of course, it, it kind of sticks with you the same way that, you know, the Three Stooges and the Little Rascal Shorts, you know, stuck with me forever because you're seeing them five days a week. You know, mm -hmm. you come home from school and you get, you know, half an hour of those those shorts sprinkled together. And they just become kind of the bedrock of what you think of as comedy. And so... Um, I kind of I kind of wish to a degree that I'd seen the, I didn't see the Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd stuff until I was into my teenage years. Yeah, the Keaton was that way for me. Yeah. Um, and some mostly most of it was even later. Yeah. I saw just a couple of them on PBS. Um, I think and probably just the General and maybe Steamboat Bill, but um, but the others it wasn't until much later. And it's, luckily, it's gotten a lot easier. Like I say, I mean, I watched The Kid Brother off YouTube. I mean, there's a lot of this stuff that's easy to see, and there are even really fantastic DVD and Blu-ray releases mm -hmm. of a lot of Lloyd stuff and, of course, certainly of Buster Keaton stuff as well. It becomes more and more necessary for there to be a curiosity about this stuff. You have to seek it out. In other words, this isn't something that's going to be popping up on television and people are just going to catch it nowadays, not in the 21st century. Right. You have to have some kind of curiosity about this stuff. Something's got to be drawing you to it. To see, to see it now, you've got to actually go and track it down to a degree. Even if all you're doing to track it down is typing the kid brother into the search mm -hmm. bar for YouTube, 
you've got to at least make that stretch. But you're not going to stumble over it like we used to, where you're just turning the dial, oh, that looks interesting, right? and just randomly here it is. You have to look for something specifically now. And I think, and I'm going to use the word unsophisticated, I think that when we were kids, there was still the ability to be unsophisticated enough as a viewer to be flipping channels to see a black and white, kinetic, obvious comedy and to not immediately twig to the fact that it was a silent movie because what you're watching it has you know it has music underneath it and there's nobody speaking it's just all this you know a chase mm-hmm. or some kind of weird fight or whatever is happening so there's not necessarily uh, that thing that you know that kind of would ping in somebody else's mind after our generation that would make that differentiation immediately because one it's in black and white and two because well nobody's saying anything because I think that Growing up watching those black and white shorts like Three Stooges and Little Rascals, we were already more than happy to go back and forth between color and black and white without it really jumping, you know, jumping into our laps and saying, "Hey, this is really, really old." Or well, plus when we were kids, boy, all the all the millennials that listen to your show are going to feel really <laughs> alienated. But when we were kids, I mean, we'd watch a lot of black and white TV anyway. I mean, watching oh, yeah. Monsters and Adam's Family in the early seasons of Gilligan's Island and yep. Lost in Space and all of that. So black and white was just, that was not a big deal at all. No, and, and, and more and more, of course, it really is. And I, I'm not saying that there's a like an entire contingent out there of younger people who, who refuse to watch black and white because... Well, but there is. There is, <laughs> yeah. but at the same time, if they have that, if they have that curiosity, if they're more than just casual movie watchers, then they're going to reach a point where they don't give a shit yeah. because they, they'll, they'll, re, they'll, re, they'll, they will come to a point where they watch, they, they watch something because they're, they're told it's a legendary film. And, you know, you sit through Casablanca or Citizen Kane or, you know, Lost Horizon or whatever. And suddenly mm-hmm. you're just sitting there and you're going, I don't really give a shit that it's in black and white. This is just good. And so that changes, that will change an act, an active film fan into someone who doesn't give a shit about color versus black and white. But um, casual film goers, I mean, they're not really going to be curious enough about this in the first place. And casual film goers, quite honestly, aren't going to be listening to a podcast like this anyway. So. No. <laughs> no, they are not. <laughs> so, uh, i tell you what, let's take a quick run through the uh, a plot synopsis to kind of talk a little bit about this. Maybe we should really quickly first, though, as I said before, the, the one thing that I definitely remembered before I started doing my research was that uh, Harold Lloyd was missing uh, a thumb and a finger on his, is it his right or his left His right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, what happened was in the, uh, he was making the uh, short called Haunted Spooks in 1919, and they were doing a photo shoot, and he's just doing little bits and bits of business with props and so on, and there's a prop bomb that he's going to, he picks up and he's going to light a cigarette with. So he lights the fuse and picks it up. I'll light a cigarette with it. We'll take a picture. And he realizes, oh, this isn't a very good shot. And as he lowers his hand, the thing goes off. And blew his finger and his thumb off completely. Yeah. And so they designed a prosthetic, like a glove, that would move. It had a fake uh, index finger and a fake thumb. And as he moved his other fingers, the index finger would move with it. So it's hidden pretty well. Yeah, I agree. Um, in this movie, there's one shot where if you look, you can see it pretty easily, at least on the Blu-ray, the Criterion Blu-ray, which is just Harold Lloyd's films, especially the later ones, look incredible because he owned them and realized that they were 
worth keeping. That they were, so, they were going to be valuable down So he line. preserved the negatives. He made answer prints. Like, he had a fire in his vault in, I think, the 60s. But he'd already made answer prints, and he kept things in different places. So if there was a fire one place, his stuff wouldn't be destroyed. So anyway, there's a shot early in the movie where Harold has to sign a, um, a contract right. with the guy who runs the medicine show, and his right hand is over a fence. And on the Criterion Blu-ray, it's so clear you can actually see a little phrase at the end of the fingers. Really? Or the prosthetic, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, because it's essentially a glove, and of yeah. course it's just getting worn out, yeah. Yeah, and I think huh. it was rubber most of the time, but for some reason in this shot, you could actually see some little tiny threads. Interesting. I did not I did not take note of that, but then again, I was watching it off YouTube and not off, mm-hmm. of, a, not off of a Blu-ray. Yeah, so. I mean, in, in as this movie was originally seen, you'd never see that. Oh, God, no, yeah. You know, but... And I do wonder, I don't, I don't know this, I tried to do a little research to know if the general public was aware of this uh, this missing finger problem that he had. I don't even know if the general public back then knew enough to notice things like that. If I don't know if they, that they were aware necessarily that he had lost those fingers. They knew there'd been an accident because it took him off, um, it took him out of commission for a bit while he recovered. Yeah. They, they stopped production of the short and then picked it up after he'd recovered because he had some burns on his face too. Well, yeah, my understanding was that they 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 were surprised that he did not lose his his sight. His eyes, yeah. yeah. Um, so he was laid out pretty well, and it made the news. It made the news, and I'm sure that it was noted, but it wasn't a thing where in every film they would say, "Oh, and be sure to notice he's got a." Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the the idea would be to do things so effectively that nobody would be thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, so. and I think that once the they may have mentioned it at some point as he came back. Honestly, don't know. But I don't think it was something that was mentioned every time. I know I've read a lot of reviews of his films, contemporary reviews, and it's never mentioned there that you know they do an especially good job of hiding the hand or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, I tell you what, let me, uh, let me get started on this plot synopsis. So The Kid Brother, 1927. Uh, by this time, he was an independent film producer. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hickories are a respected family in Hickoryville, 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 the South. <laughs> yes, a very, a very generalized the South. But I do love the idea that it's the Hickory family in Hickoryville because it's mm-hmm. we're, we're establishing right up front that there's some authority here, mainly because of uh, possibly a previous generation. I mean, we're going to have to go with that, right? Sure. Uh, Sheriff Jim and his big, strong sons, Leo and Olin, have little respect for the youngest son, Harold, who does not have their muscles. Of course, Harold being played by Harold Lloyd. Now, how frequently was he playing characters just named Harold? A lot. And I I think that to a degree, that was probably a smart move if he was as well known as it turns out that he was. If you're -hmm. you're that wealthy making films in the 20s, I mean, remember, this is... (laughs) This is, uh, this is very early in the film era. Mm-hmm. And if you're making a lot of money, that means that a lot of people are watching your films. And yeah. therefore, they know you as Harold Lloyd. They're silent movies in the first place. So why not just call the damn character Harold and, and not split the difference between people identifying with the character to a degree? Yeah, because everybody knew he's not disappearing into roles. And you know neither did Keaton or Chaplin. No. Or the Three Stooges or Laurel and Hardy. So yeah, Harold will do. That that's you know the name usually wasn't important. True. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. These are comedies, man. Just yeah. Like, roll with it. So, uh, when the father and his two muscular sons go to an important town meeting to discuss a dam, Harold is left behind, and he puts on his father's gun and badge to uh, 
you know, because he, he wishes he was like his brothers, and so he play acts a little bit while they're gone. Well, yeah, as they go to town, it's like, oh, sorry, son, this is no place for a boy. And I know they keep referring to him as a boy, and it's like, well, how old is this guy now? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute now. Well, uh, when he's parading around the, the house and, and the yard with the, the gun and the badge, he's mistaken for the sheriff by Flash Farrell. Now, I would, dis- I would disagree with this to a degree. I th- I'm pretty sure, if, the, if memory serves, in the film, didn't this uh, medicine show guy kind of get the sense that he really wasn't the sheriff? He thought it was the sheriff for about 30 seconds. And then he saw him do something stupid and damn near shoot himself. Yeah, yeah. What happens, it's a long story, but um, he sees Harold chasing away a local. You know, this guy's gotten scared because Harold's gun goes off accidentally. Right. So he sees this guy running away and Harold chasing him. Like, oh, this is the sheriff. And then Harold starts to have a gunfight with, I think, a broom or a rake and loses. (laughs) And then Flash says, oh, this guy's an idiot. (laughs) This is not the sheriff. (laughs) So Farrell talks Harold into signing a permit to let him uh, run his medicine show there in Hickoryville. Now, the reason that he uh, knows that he needs to pull something like this is that this medicine show guy has been made aware that uh, the local sheriff do not like medicine shows and do not ever sign permits for them for whatever reason. So he uh, kind of backdoors his way into mm-hmm. this in a, in a clever opportunity chance here. Now, one of the people who works in this medicine show is the dancer, Mary. Mm-hmm. Now, Mary is a very pretty lady, and she's actually, the actress, uh, actually worked with uh, Harold Lloyd in seven different films. Yes, um, and this this is where I'm going to jump in and and talk about her for just a bit. It was Jobina Ralston. Yep. And Harold was, um, one of the things he loved about his character, who they called him the glass or glasses character, and he was just a guy with a pair of glasses. Um, it was real easy for him to have romances in his films, as opposed to, say, Chaplin or Keaton, because he looked just like a regular guy. True. So early on with the shorts, he had a uh, co-star, B.B. Uh, Daniels, and usually there it was just, she was just a girl. And there, the element of romance kind of grew as they went. Um, and Harold and Beebe had incredible chemistry and were romantically involved. Some say they may have been engaged, but she left him. She didn't think he was ever going to amount to anything major. <laughs> okay. So his next co-star was um, Mildred Davis, who went through all the rest of the shorts and the features up to safety last. That was her last one. Okay. And she and Harold, again, Harold had a chemistry was really important for him, and their, their chemistry was so strong they wound up getting married. Oh, okay. And Mildred was also incredibly beautiful. In fact, she was the first cover, she was the first spokesmodel for Maybelline Cosmetics. Wow, okay. In fact, they did a book on Maybelline a few years ago, and she was the cover girl. Um, But after Safety Last, they got married, and her contract ran out, and Harold wanted, he didn't want his wife to be on screen with him because he thought that might be distracting to audiences. He always, he only played a married man in one silent feature. He thought it was more dramatic if he were single trying to get the girl. Yeah, well, of course, that makes sense. So he brings in Jobina Ralston, who they also had incredible chemistry on screen. I think you can see it Oh, definitely. all over. And their chemistry is great, and they wound up having an affair, too. So this was her (laughs) last film with Harold, and after this, oddly enough, he never had another co-star for more than one film at a time. Perhaps that came from home. <laughs> that might have been a decision the wife made. Yeah, but she was, Drubina was with him in um, a lot, she was in The Freshman too, which is if you're going to have one other Harold film to watch, it's that one. 
But uh, she was fantastic. And then she actually, after this, was in Wings. And yeah, that's where she met her husband. Yeah, met, met Richard Arlen there. So yeah, so she did all right for herself, too. Well, what was weird to me was that what stood out is, strangely enough, um, Miss Ralston was born in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. And I spent a fair amount of my youth in that small town. Oh, really? Of course, she was born there in 1899, but... So you didn't know her? That never met her. Aw. Strange we never passed. It is. You didn't run into her down at the dollar store. <laughs> no, we never did. It was really strange. I don't know why. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it was really. It's, it's always odd when I run across uh, some celebrity, especially a film celebrity, who I, I can identify with a place that I lived until I was nine years old. I understand. So it does. It doesn't seem natural, but I do think that it's strange. I, I mean, her career. She she retired after she got married. I think she just kind of retired from filmmaking I to think a so. large degree. Uh, and she did make a couple of talkies, but what's really weird is that one of her talkies is a lost film, mm-hmm. uh, Rough Night. No, I'm sorry, Rough Waters. It's kind of weird because it's a Rintin Tin film, hmm. and you'd think, wow, they didn't they didn't preserve the 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 dog the dog hero stories uh, well enough for there to be a print of it still floating around somewhere, but. No, you figure, you know, London After Midnight, you know, Lon Chaney was one of the biggest stars in the world, and that one's gone, so... Yeah. It's yeah. a strange thing, but yeah, she she was great. I mean, she's a really good actress, and the chemistry that she... And on screen, I mean, Harold had great chemistry with, with his wife, Mildred Davis, but I think he and Jovina were the best... She was his best co-star, I think. Of course, it helps that the films... The, the longer he made films, the better they got, and she got... She was also got the best timing of the bunch of... Oh really? Okay. Well, yes. that that would make sense. I mean, they 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 are really good together, and it does make a lot of sense. Me looking at an overview of Lloyd's career, it does seem as if, like a lot of filmmakers, he was able to refine. I mean, he was working within, and this isn't a put down, but he was working within a single genre. Mm-hmm. So, if you're going to concentrate <clears throat> and hone that thing down to its bare essence and get better and better and better at it, it it becomes that thing where not to you know not to point fingers at an obvious uh, descendant of this kind of thinking, but you look at somebody like Jackie Chan, who over the course of his career is really kind of doing the same thing again, making the same kind of film again and again and again, and just getting more and more. It's like, how do we fill in those gaps? How do we mm-hmm. tighten things up? How do we make things more kinetic, more energetic, more fun, more, more surprising? How do we pull those stunts in a way that make makes it, pop off the screen in a larger and better way. And so that seems to be what Harold Lloyd was invested in as well, especially once he became an, an independent film producer where he's using his fame and he's just trying to build and build and build. So that it becomes, his events, his films become an event for the audience where they can trust him. They know yeah. that going in, I'm going to go there and I'm going to laugh. Mm-hmm. Period. End of story. And so the uh, Beauty of watching something like this, which is you know 1927, so we're we're, we're approaching the end of the the silent era, and he is much like Buster Keaton at the time, you know the, the same period of time. They've been doing this for a long while now, years, mm-hmm. and so they know what works and they know what doesn't. Well, in fact, I mean to put it in perspective, this was the same year that Keaton did the General. Yeah, so they both had their act down pretty well yeah. at this point. And, and luckily, both of them were in a position to be uh, in control enough to be able mm-hmm. to call the shots and to trust their own instincts because they, like I say, have the experience to know what's going to work and what doesn't. And this whole movie, The Kid Brother, it is, it's a perfectly wound construction to generate smiles and laughs. Mm-hmm. I mean, this thing works like a charm. And uh, 
the, the I even like uh, to a degree, like I say, uh, my memory on the shorts is that I think the shorts that I'm aware of for Harold Lloyd are earlier in his career. But by this time, I have the sense that he was essentially playing a variation of the same character in every film. In other words, this guy who is fast and smart and can't, you know, they, he can be gotten the better of, but you really got to work hard to do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. He never played the dunce or anything. He was always a go-getter who had to overcome some odds right. somehow. And sometimes they would put something in there for him. Like in one of his earliest features was Grandma's Boy, and he was a coward. Okay. In fact, that was one of the early... Oh, he didn't do very many rural films, and that was one of the uh, the only, uh, I think, one of the only other features that was had a rural setting. But there was one film, I, I think, Girl Shot, where he had a stutter. You know, there was put something where he had some odds to overcome or something he had to do to prove himself. Right. But he was always smart. He always you know, was a hard-working, go-getter kind of guy. And variations on that type of character. Well, it always seemed like at least in this film, those characteristics seem to be something that he was trying to emphasize to his audience as the things that would be admirable in anybody. Yeah. So the uh, not not that he doesn't do things, and that's one of the things that I like is that while presenting this character, the character that Harold Lloyd plays is someone that you can admire and who is someone who's worth looking up to. But at the same time, he does do some he does do some things where you're like, okay, he's just a little pissed off now and he's doing something probably shouldn't have, he probably shouldn't have kicked that guy. <laughs> yeah. He really probably shouldn't have kicked that guy, but he was angry. You yeah, know? and he got away with it. Yeah, and he got away with it. And, and, that's, and that's the funny part of it. But there's not a lot of that, but there's just enough to make the character a little multifaceted. In other words, mm-hmm. he's not he's not just a stalwart good guy. Mm-hmm. who's trying to do the right thing. He is a stalwart good guy, but he you piss him off and he's going to he's yeah. going to retaliate. You piss yeah, him he's off. Gonna he's going to fight gonna, back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think that's great and that that's something that uh I do find that people looking back on silent films, they see it as a uh they they see these films as somehow uh less complicated or less nuanced and that's not necessarily true. Because like I say, his character could have been played as this straight arrow good guy, but there are shadings within this mm-hmm. film, just in this film alone, where you're looking at this guy and going, yeah, that was that was mean. You should have done that. <laughs> you really probably should have done that thing there either. And there are moments, and I think this is great too, where he starts uh, within the structure of the story, he starts to lie. Mm-hmm. And you can see him start to lie and then catch himself and realize I'm going to pay for this down the road. Mm-hmm. And you can you it's almost like you can watch the gears turn in his brain and he just goes, "No, okay, let me tell you the truth." <laughs> because let's just cut to the chase here because if I tell you this lie and you're here for very long, you're going to find out. Yeah. Right? And so, there's a lot to like about this and the the kinetic storyline, the the fast-paced chases, the I will say this, I, I thought more was going to be made out of the uh, antagonistic relationship between him and, his, and, and his, between Harold and his, the local character who is his uh, quote-unquote nemesis. Mm-hmm. I thought a lot more was going to be made of that, and it's only just this little bitty thing in the in the final few minutes of the movie, which actually helps to pay off the larger story. Yeah, well, there's so much going on with everything else yeah. that there wasn't really room for him. So, And it's, in, a, in, a, in a different movie, they might have made room for that to factor into something somewhere mm-hmm. down the road. But at the same time, maybe they did originally think that they were going to do something like that and then realize like, we're really kind of overcomplicating things. So it factors in. There's there's a callback to that, you know, local nemesis story part. Mm-hmm. That, little, that little subplot does get brought up near the end again, but not in a way that you actually think is going to happen. Yeah. And one thing I'll, that the local nemesis was, his name in the film was Hank Hooper. 
as opposed to Harold Hickory. So they're kind of a yin and yang thing there. Yeah. It's played by an actor named Ralph Yeardsley. And I don't know how well you could see it on YouTube, but he is so, he's great. He's always making, he's got these little faces that he'll make yes. or little yes. asides. And that's why I thought maybe there's going to be, really he would good. be more, I thought he was, yeah. that's probably why I thought he was going to be more involved in the story. Mm-hmm. But he's really not. I mean, he's like missing from like the middle third plus of the entire but he, film. But his actions do set up some big things. True, true. If you think about it, he's, the reason some big story points happen is because of him. Well, back to the story. Uh, when his father finds out that Harold authorized the medicine show to perform, uh, he orders his son to shut the, shut the thing down. But Harold uh, tries and fails. Uh, Farrell makes a fool out of him and then has him tied up. And that was a really weird scene. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but that was that was pretty weird. Yeah. And it was used, him being tied up like that was actually used as like the key art for poster for poster advertisements for this movie, which that is not a representative image from this film. <laughs> no, where he's hang, hung with his arms behind him. With his arms him behind him, yeah. It's like, what what in the hell were, the, were they, was there a sadomasochistic portion of the audience they were trying to appeal to? I don't understand. I know how the entire town is just yucking it up, you know, just I know. laughing at this guy. It's very and that, that scene, uh, there's a million examples of this, but this film... Is filled with incredible detail in yeah. the background. In that scene, you see this crowd in front of the stage, and the shots from the stage itself, you can see far in the background, there are a couple people on the roof of a building across the street watching the medicine show. You can just barely see, but they're there. And it's little touches like that that, I mean, it's a whole world that they've set up here. It's not a quick and fast movie. They really paid a lot of attention to detail. It's definitely somewhere in the South. It is. It's in the South, for sure. <laughs> well, this is where Harold's sworn enemy shows up. Hank Hooper pelts him uh, pelts him with stuff and accidentally starts a fire that consumes the medicine show's wagon. Uh, that, was a t- that was a turn I did not expect this story to take. Mm-hmm. Well, Harold invites Mary to spend the night in the family home, because now she doesn't have a place to sleep. Uh, J- uh, Jim is asleep. Oh, that's his father. Is asleep, so Harold cannot get his permission so Harold uses his wits to overcome the opposition of his brothers. Uh, however, Miss Hooper and her son Hank show up to take Mary with them, as it would not be decent for Mary to spend the night in a house without woman folk. Woman folk. <laughs> which, which is another one of those cute little things where there's never a point in this whole this whole section of the film where you're thinking that he's try, he's doing this to try to take advantage of Mary, but at the same time, when you know it's it's the neighbors who are just like no 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 no. <laughs> People are going to talk about this. She needs to come over here where there's a woman who is at least present, and therefore there won't be any questions later on mm-hmm. about what may or may not have happened. Because yeah. that's a house with four men, and that's bad. <laughs> that would be very bad. Yeah, you, you can see where she's coming from. Easily, easily, easily. Well, the next day uh, is a town celebration where Jim is supposed to turn over to a state official the funds raised by the residents to help build the local dam. Uh, this dam is a big deal. This is the thing that's going to turn this this small town into some kind of actual metropolis. It's going to turn it into possibly a city. Uh, where is Hickoryville now? Oh, it's my. in the south. It's somewhere in the south. <laughs> it's many places in the south, probably. Uh, however, the money is gone. Jim strongly suspects Farrell and uh, Sidoni, that's the, uh, the medicine show folks, of being responsible, but Sam Hooper accuses him of the theft and refuses to let him go after them. So the sheriff sends Leo and Olin, his two sons, but not Harold, after them. 
When they return empty-handed, Jim allows himself to be tied up because, well, obviously everybody in the world now thinks that he stole his money for some stupid reason. Uh, and there is talk of a lynching, which, you know, suddenly gets a little dark, mm-hmm. just out of the blue. Even though, as the audience, we're well aware that he didn't he didn't steal the money. As, as an audience member, you're sitting there going, well, okay, so this is a comedy. We're going to eventually veer our way back into turning this into something funny. Right? Eventually. <laughs> We're going to get there. Well, Harold confesses to Mary that he is not the person he pretended to be. In other words, he's not the sheriff. But she tells him that she has faith in him. And when Hank accuses her of being in on the robbery, Harold fights back with some men grab her, only to have Hank knock him out and set him adrift in a rowboat. This is a pretty dastardly thing that <laughs> that his, his nemesis does here. Mm-hmm. But like I say, this is not how I thought things were going to play out with this nemesis character. You know, setting him adrift in a rowboat to get rid of him for a while is not how I thought not how I thought the the guy who was gonna be one of the bad guys in the movie was set up to be. But turns out by the end of it he's not really that bad a guy. He's just kind of a dick, but he's, he's dick. not he's not a murderer or <laughs> Yeah, he's he's not a scumbag like these medicine show folk. Yeah. Can't trust medicine show folk. I've said that for years. Years and years. Carnival folks are okay. They seem to, I mean, they come with cotton candy. So yeah. They're fairly okay. And funnel cake. Funnel cake. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. You can trust, you can trust carnival people. Yeah. Let them in your home at all times. <laughs> Any hour of the day or night. Yeah, give they're them, good. Give them a key. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he awakens, uh, so Harold awakens after the boat reaches an abandoned beached ship. Aboard this, he finds the real thieves. That would be uh, the Medicine Show folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sidoni uh, disposes of Farrell. In other words, there's a fight between the two medicine show guys. Uh, and uh, let's just say one of them doesn't make it out. They're trying to, do, to decide how to divide the money. Then the strong man spots Harold and chases him all over the ship. Uh, that, is, that is a single sentence that is covering about 10 minutes of film time. People. Yeah. <laughs> that is uh, a very funny thing. And of course, they're not detailing some of the, the funnier little bits and pieces in the story as it goes along either. Eventually, Harold subdues uh, Sidoni and uh, races back to town with his prisoner and the money to save his father from being lynched. Once again, that dark element there. Uh, An impressed Jim, that's his father, tells his son, Son, you're a real hickory. Which, I guess, is a compliment. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's you're part of the family. Yeah, you're a real man. I respect you now. Even with your glasses on. Mm -hmm. Uh, As Harold and Mary walk away, they encounter Hank... Harold musters the courage to fight his longtime nemesis and beats him up. So we end with a fight. A comedic fight, but a fight nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Now, that is like describing how to construct a joke. So it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really get across the joys involved in, in watching this movie. Now, there are so many great sequences in yes. this film. It's just, it's just beautiful. And I have to say, even going into this knowing that uh, for the more dangerous stuff, He's being doubled by his, his his longtime stuntman. I can't tell necessarily at all when the switch is being made, when there's an edit and it's no longer Lloyd and it's his stuntman. Well, he still did a lot of, you know, pretty strenuous stuff on his own. I mean, there's that sequence early on where there's a chase with him and Hank Hooper. Yeah. And Harold runs up a bucket and then across a wood pile that goes yes. out from under him and then on a onto a barrel that collapses all in one shot, and that's Harold. That's definitely him. That's what yeah. I mean. Is like a lot of it, and I think that's one of the things that helps them to fool the eye because some of the stuff that is clearly, you know, 
dangerous. There's no way to do like that fall off that wood pile mm-hmm. without getting bruised up. Oh yeah. I mean, you're you're going to take some lumps, but knowing that and watching that when they make the switch, that makes it even harder to know where the switch may or may not be because so much of what you're seeing is obviously him. Mm-hmm. It make it, it it's just that much more uh, of a of a smart way to fool the eye, and even a sophisticated audience is going to be looking at it and not be able to really pick up on it because past a certain point there were some things where I was like I'm pretty sure that has to be the stuntman but I have no way to be sure yeah I cannot be sure at all like some of those uh, some of that stuff on the uh, well okay for instance some of that stuff he's doing when they're when he's being chased on the ship there's some of that stuff that I'm pretty sure had to be the stuntman but some of it clearly isn't because the camera's on him and you're watching him do it mm-hmm. and so uh I'd love to know what the, what the trick in their minds were to figure out which were the ones that were going to be done by the stuntman and which were the ones that were going to be done by Lloyd. Yeah. How they how they decided to to split the difference, split the uh, to split the workload up to a degree. Yeah, it makes you wonder because I mean, I was with Harold with Lloyd, and he might want to do all of his own stunts, for instance. But Who knows? but you know, if he breaks a leg. They shut this thing down. It's done. Yeah, nobody's getting so, paid. So he can't. He can't do that. Yeah. You know? So there has to be this point where you know he has to be wearing a certain amount of padding mm-hmm. under his clothing for some of this stuff because you don't you don't take some of those dives and do some of those uh, things that are clearly the star of the picture without there being you know some, some knee pads and some and probably uh, a back brace to help him get you know to help him get uh, to help him take some of the. Because there's a couple of points where he's like landing pretty hard in certain areas. He's mm-hmm. wearing braces and he's probably wearing padding of some sort. And he's thin enough so that it, the, the clothing can hide it very effectively. But you're still, no matter what, you know, that you're still getting the, the wind knocked out of you. You're falling off that barrel. You're still falling off that barrel. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all of this stuff that is, is, is super impressive. And like I say, I would love to, if there's a, I'm sure there is, I didn't do, I probably just didn't dig enough into the research to find out. It's like, just what was the, what was the dividing line between what the star was going to do and what the stuntman was going to do? I'd love yeah, to know how they thought about that. I would like to know that, too. I know that one sequence he, he, with the um, some of the wagon stuff. Yeah. You know, they had a stunt driver. Oh, they had to. Because yeah, there's no he's, way. He's standing up and whipping those horses while yeah, One bit where he's up. going down a hill at just yeah. breakneck speed. And it's like, good Lord, that just looks like death waiting to happen. <laughs> it looks like an accident and a neck snap. Yeah, it does. It's just insane. Now, one of the... Um, on the opposite side of things, one I think the best little sequence in the film is the uh, bit where Harold has met Mary for the first time. Okay. And um, he, um, she's said, "Hey, I'd love to see you again." And it's oh, okay. That'd be great. So she starts to walk away down a hill, and he realizes, oh, "Wait yeah. a minute!" So he climbs up a tree, and as he climbs, the camera follows him up. And he stops on a lower branch. Hey, where are you? Where are you? And she says, I'm with the medicine. Oh, down by the river. Oh, okay. She walks further down the hill and he climbs up again. And the camera goes up with him as he climbs. What's your name? Oh, it's Mary. Oh, okay. And then she walks further down the hill. So he climbs higher climbs in the higher tree. higher to the very top of the tree. Goodbye. And then there's this tiny little title card. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, because she's well far away. And then he falls out of the tree, and at the, once he reaches the ground, he starts plucking flowers. She loves me. She loves me not. But they, 
they built an elevator platform to put the camera on to follow him up the tree. Yeah, so they could ratchet it up yeah. slowly in this single shot. Yeah, And that's the level of filmmaking that we're talking about. I think a lot of people, when you hear silent comedy, you just think of guys getting pies thrown at him. And this is a real movie. Yeah. I mean, yes. it, this is as good as silent films get, I think. Well, by the man, by the mid to late 20s, the people who've been doing they've been doing this for years now. So the tricks, the ideas, the 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 ability to do this were very they were very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. The you got to understand that when sound got introduced, that put a, that 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 threw a monkey monkey wrench into a lot of the the techniques and and ability of filmmakers to be as smooth and as competent and as skillful as they had been because they had this whole new thing that they had to contend with now, which is they had to record sound. Mm-hmm. So those first you know, those first few years of doing talkies, movies took a little bit of a step back, unfortunately, because you be, you now had to relearn what you were doing with this extra thing getting in your way, this whole other element that now complicated things. But in the 20s, when, when you're talking about silent movies, they had it down to a science, man. Mm-hmm. They've been doing it long enough that that you didn't just have basic techniques. People were doing incredibly complicated things really, really well, trying to outdo the competition, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of these late 20s, not just comedies, all of these films, the, the filmmaking is at a very high level. These are extremely well-made movies. These are people who are working at the top of their game and trying to figure out new ways to do what they're doing to best the other people around them, to make their movies stand out next to the competition. And uh, this is a, this is a fine example of it because he's always, there's not, honestly, there's not a five-minute period of this movie where you're not seeing something that's visually interesting. And I don't just mean funny, but I mean, they're not just necessarily like that excellent camera move up the tree, as mm-hmm. you're talking about, where he can climb higher and still keep her in view. It's all kinds of things of that nature. That's just one example. Well, the opening shot where you see the medicine show coming into town past that boat. Yeah. That's a beautiful shot. Yes, it is. You know, in any film, with the sun rising over the hills behind them, it's just yep. a gorgeous, gorgeous shot. I'm glad you picked this film to talk about because I had uh, I'd never seen it. Like I said, this is the first time I've watched this movie. And it has pointed me down the road of wanting to get uh, a lot more of his uh, 20s features uh, and just sit down and start going through them. And luckily for anybody listening to us right now, if you're unaware of this, a lot of this stuff is out there very very readily available and quite watchable copies on YouTube. So you don't have to, you know, you, you can sample this stuff before you spend any money on it. And I think that uh, if you have any curiosity about this at all, I think you will get a kick out of this. This is an amazing little film. Mm, there it is. And um, a couple other points to make. I'm going back to one that you had mentioned earlier about the boat. Okay. Um, at this point, like I said, Harold Lloyd was a pretty big deal. They bought a boat, sailed it under its own power. Oh, that the boat in the film? Okay. Yeah. And that was, and they sunk it. That's actually shot right off Catalina Island. All right. Um, which, of course, looks like it's the rural south. But oh, it, yeah, yeah. That's it's, Catalina it's, Island. It's, it's the south. In fact, that's incredible. This film was, um, took them six months to shoot, and they shot it at the Lansky Ranch in Burbank. It was okay. a big movie production ranch. Um, all those hills that you see, yeah, that's now Forest Lawn Cemetery. 
Oh, God, really? Yeah. And just beyond where our eyes would see as Harold climbs up that tree is now where Disney Studios is. <laughs> Dis- so, Di- what, Disneyland? Disney Studios. The oh, the studios. studios. So, oh, okay. the movie so, I mean, we're basically looking at what downtown Los Angeles looked like. In, in 1927. Burbank, in 1927. Holy crap. It's incredible to think about, you know, how much changed since then. That's nuts. Yeah. And they like with Forest Lawn, they leveled off a lot of those hills, but there's still some pretty big hills there. But yeah, all those hills, that's Forest Lawn looking down at Disney Studios. Well, when did See because I just and this is this is true of almost any uh, especially like a western. And you see, you know, a group of men riding over you know, riding over hills and mm-hmm. what has to obviously be somewhere in Southern California because they're shooting these things as close to, as close to the studios lots as they can. And there's a lot of me that, that while, while watching this, I was just, I was just wondering, I was like, you know, 10 years later, there'd be the, the three, three musketeers riding over yeah. the same <laughs> stupid hills, you know, but the, uh, and, and like 7 billion other mm-hmm. probable Westerns. I don't know when Forest Lawn was built though. So, and I'm not quite sure on that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't go quite that nerdy enough. <laughs> well, no, it's just, it's just I, what, what's hilarious to me is um, that moment. And this was, all, this was like 25 years ago. One of my favorite movies of all time is uh, the, Adventures of Robin, uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood with mm-hmm. Errol Flynn. And it really took, I saw it at such a young age and was so influenced by it and loved it so much that it, it was a mental roadblock for me to get past the realization that they didn't go to England to film this. You know that, right? <laughs> The Avengers Robin Hood was shot in California. So there was that moment where I had to like stop and it was like you could you, in my brain you could probably hear the screeching brake pads as the, the brakes were applied and I had to think, oh wow. So the Avengers of Robin Hood was shot in the same place that just about seven million Westerns were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not it's not England. It's not somewhere oh that's that's weird. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So yeah, yeah, that's 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 the way I feel about uh, a lot of things like this. And now, now, ever since then, that changed everything. So now I'm watching this and it's like, oh, yeah, it takes place in the South, <clears throat> Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Duke's Hazard. They, after lunch, they just go down to Hollywood Boulevard. And exactly. <laughs> Hazard County was somewhere near Burbank. Yeah. So. And then. Uh, Luckily, Harold Lloyd never wandered on the set of the Dukes of Hazard, but <laughs> although I don't watch that, <laughs> that would have been funny. That would have been a good show. Um, another person that um, we talked a little bit about, Jobina Ralston and uh, Ralph Yearsley, but definitely I want to talk a little bit about the strong man. Oh yeah, okay. Who's uh, is played by an actor named Constantine Romanoff, who is a former professional wrestler so i don't get to talk about wrestling enough on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) but he was actually perfect in this and lloyd got him because he knew how to do what wrestlers call a working punch he could throw a punch that looks like it's doing a lot of damage but didn't okay so for that fight scene on the boat which was all all those were shot in the boat that yeah, wasn't they, set. That they, was shot they had to be the because they had to be because they, and they were choosing their shots so that you could always see the background. You could see the, the in the distance. You could see just a little bit of the sky and the and the water and the shoreline yeah. as well. So and yeah. once they were inside the boat, that was inside the boat as well. Those weren't. Oh, sets. that I didn't know. Okay, but Constantine Romanov could, it, you know, he could be very very physical yet not kill you. So you know, Lloyd did all that fight himself for most of it. Uh-huh. So. They could get in there and throw each other around, and Romanov could do that without actually hurting him because that fight's 
pretty nasty. I mean, they're, they're, it's a very comedic fight. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot going on, and he actually also was in um, monkey business with the Marx Brothers. Oh, okay. I okay. thought it was a, a nice little tie-in, and he was one of the monkey men in Flash Gordon. Oh God, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he also had small Wait, parts. The, the first one, the first. Yeah, series? the first one. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And he was in. Um, yeah, it's in a few other Lloyd films, but this was his biggest part. One of the um, one of my favorite sequences in this film is on that ship. It's the little the little monkey, where Harold is hiding, and Romanov doesn't know he's there, and the monkey suddenly starts jumping up and down, <laughs> trying yes. to get his attention. And you can almost see the, the, the little monkey going, hey, hey, hey he's, he's, over here. Here. he's over here, he's over here, he's over here. It's yeah. just crazy yeah. how, how they got a monkey to do that. And then he goes over and he's like pointing back at Harold. It's like, look, look, right there, right there, right there. There's so much dense packed into this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's it's very funny. It is a, uh, it's a, it's a well-constructed watch mm-hmm. that d- every piece fits perfectly into its place. Oh, yeah. Well, and again, another thing on the ship, which that whole sequence is, is brilliant, but the bit where Harold is hiding and he's trying to hide from the, the strong man, Romanov, mm-hmm. and he ties some shoes onto the monkey's feet and sends yes. the monkey up the steps. Yes. So that it sounds bad, like he's walking away. Yeah. And so the bad guy goes up and he's under a balcony and he hears the steps and you see him look up and just as the monkey is going to like around this little outcropping, and at the exact moment he sticks his head up, the monkey rounds the corner so he doesn't see him. Yes. And and he's like looking and looking and and he doesn't see him and he comes back down and then the monkey exactly the right time comes back around again and it's just brilliant time. It's it's really excellent and comedic timing. And it's one amazing. thing I thought as he would raise up and down and didn't see him is could this be the first appearance of an invisible primate? Ah, here we go. You sack of shit. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about film innovation. Film innovation, yes. Film innovation. But, and podcasting innovation. Seriously, will, folks. Folks, listeners, this will be the last time I talk with John Hudson. I am going to outlaw him now from podcasting. But no, go away. All, go. All, no, no, no. Seriously, all references to, to the invisible chimp aside, that sequence is... It's funny, man. It's really funny. Just amazing. And that little monkey actually was um, also in... Gosh, I, if you I, say the Wizard of Oz, I'm gonna lose my shit. <laughs> no, he wasn't. I actually had a note about something that that monkey was in, and now I don't have it. So <laughs> he, he was in some other stuff too. <laughs> goddamn monkey! <laughs> yeah, which sounds like a great punk band, by the way. Goddamn monkey! <laughs> goddamn monkey! <laughs> <laughs> you have to come out and play the eight gear. Yeah. But the, the timing and the monkey's name was Chicago, by the way, for those Chicago. wondering at home. Um, and one last little bit of trivia that. I just thought was great, and again goes back to the craft that goes into this film. Yeah, the the last sequence, Harold has the girl, and they're walking down a dusty road, and Harold's arch nemesis Hank Hooper sees him, and comes up, and they get into a fight, and this is all one take. Giant cloud of dust comes up as the fight starts. The dust goes away, and Hank Hooper's lying on the ground. Yep. So Harold bested the bad guy. All one take. No CGI. They built a. They dug a hole and put a grate, covered it with dirt. Underneath it were fans that would blow Blow air up. Smart. Then they had fans on the sides that would blow it away. (laughs) All for a gag that took five seconds. 
but and it looks great. It does. It's very much that gag that is done in uh, Popeye cartoons. Where yeah. Suddenly there's a cloud of of, of of smoke and dust and everything, where, and you see like a fist come out yeah. or a foot come out, and yeah, and then it dissipates, and you, you're left with you know the bruises of the two people mm-hmm. laying on the ground or the one person laying on the ground. Yeah. And then our as the the film fades to black, one final little moment. They're walking off into the sunset. And you see Harold sort of tentatively trying to put his arm around the girl, and then she just reaches off and grabs, grabs him and his, puts yeah. her arm. Which is, which is really sweet. It's, yeah, it's really sweet. sweet. And of course, the, the sweetest moment in the film is when, son, you're a real hickory. And just the all through it, Harold has just begged for his father's Acceptance. approval. Yeah. And when he gets it, I mean, it's. It's, it's got an emotional really punch. Good. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. got some pull to it. It's an impressive little movie, and once again, thank you for recommending this and well, deciding that, that we should cover this. You're I, welcome. I still, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to figure out how to put some uh, some clips from the movie in here. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be a challenge. <laughs> that will be a challenge. This is true. Um, one thing, I, I, I keep coming up with random things that I wanted to say, but this was oh, this was Lloyd's penultimate silent film. We did one more yeah. after the Speedy, which is also great. It's not quite as good as this one. It doesn't have quite the emotion behind it, but it's a great movie. A lot of it was shot in downtown New York. Okay, Babe Ruth is in it, oh. playing himself. And then after that, it was sound, and he did not... None of his sound films are as horrible as, say, the later Laurel and Hardy's or the Marx Brothers films, but he didn't transition to sound very well. Um, just... Because, like you were saying, with sound, they had to change the whole game. Yeah, everything's got to alter because you've got this element that you can't ignore that has to be part of what you're doing all the time. Yeah, and they, they had to slow down a lot. Yeah. And he lost a lot there. He also didn't really have the voice for sound that, um, like, I think the mo- the people who transitioned the sound the best were Laurel and Hardy, who had perfect voices. Yeah. And W.C. Fields, who was so good at it, most people don't even know he had a silent film career. True, very true. But for every one of those, you had you know Buster Keaton and Charlie Chase and Fatty Arbuckle, and of course Fatty had other issues. But true, they and Harold Lloyd, who just couldn't quite make the transition. And Lloyd's first sound film did giant business just because people wanted to hear him talk. But after that, each one did a little bit less. And oh, none of them are terrible, but none of them are close to the silent stuff. Which is which is a shame. Yeah. But, you know, he was never hurting for money. So. He did all right. <laughs> he did just fine. Yeah, he did. Ju- he, he turned out okay. <laughs> well, Mr. Hudson, I guess uh, next time we'll get back to the Antonio Margariti films. And uh, we've already made the decision to do The Golden Arrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll stay with Margariti's 1960s output. Uh, that's Golden Arrow is a weird one. Have you, have you looked up any information? I haven't. I haven't. Yeah, tab, tab Hunter in an Arabian Nights tale, so. Well, you sold me. <laughs> yeah, I sold you, but I don't know if I sold everybody on it. Oh, do you want to rate this one? Oh, uh, th- to me, I, uh, this was either this was either a 7 or an 8. I love this film. And see, and I give this one a 10. This, oh, okay, is, okay. this is one of my, legitimately one of my favorite films of all time. If I had to put together a top 10 list, this would wow, probably okay. be on it. I, now, I'm not saying it's one of the best films of all time, but me pers- for you personally, think it's yeah. way up there. It's a great film. It's There's nothing wrong with it, yeah. but for me personally, this is one of my ten favorite films. So I, because of that, I have to give it a ten. <laughs> but I do think it is. There's not much wrong with it. There, it's a, uh, it is a well-crafted machine. It's true, mm-hmm. it's, and it's and it is heartfelt. It's funny. It's everything it aims to be. Every scene. Well, I'm okay. glad you liked it. Yeah, I really fantastic. am. Thank you very much, my friend.
Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you uh, next time. After the corona's all over. <laughs> yes. We've all had our disinfectant injections. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, it's my understanding that you have to drink the bleach and then lay in direct sunlight. That does it. That does you right up. Solves all your problems. It would get rid of a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I understand, uh, even even uh, certain uh, financial obligations just drop away after you yeah, do that. Yeah, I think they probably would. <laughs> the only obligation after that would be the funeral cost. <laughs> and that's, that's not something for you to worry with. Not really. No, I don't care. <laughs> All right, John. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks again, as always. Just how drunk are we going to get? Welcome to Good Beer, Bad Movie Night, where each month we drink finely crafted brews while watching terrible films in order to see just how drunk you have to get to enjoy them. So tune in and join Troy. Killboy Kreitz. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> Dave. I have the weirdest boner. And Pete. IPAs are ales, meaning they are bottom fermented. Excuse me, they are top fermented. I f- that up. <laughs> Try that again. <laughs> As we drag Kathleen, Hear me. kicking and screaming through an alcohol-fueled podcast dedicated to movies of questionable quality and the frosty adult beverages that help make them tolerable. Good beer, bad movie night. Clearly, it's the beer's fault. The following is a message from the American Podcast Council. We need your help. Podcastophobia strikes four out of five Americans every day, and chances are that someone you love or could love given time is currently suffering from this devastating affliction. But it doesn't have to be that way. For zero dollars a day, you can help. Please, make some time today to let just one person know about a favorite podcast of yours. It can be this one, but it doesn't have to be. But it probably should be, but seriously, no pressure. And show them where to find it and how to download, play, and subscribe to it. And tell us what you recommended. Use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. Thank you for speaking out. And thank you for listening. episode was another change of pace episode much like the last one i like having different things on the podcast things that are a bit unexpected that don't really fit the mold of what i've built the bloody pit to be uh, because the original conception of the podcast was that essentially i could have people on to talk about just about any kind of movie or television show or something of this nature and it wouldn't have to be particularly formatted in a specific way we could actually talk about silent movies and we could have someone on to tell anecdotes about their uh, entertainment career just anything that actually happened we can talk about and i think that that is a lot of fun uh i do 
know for sure that I prefer in a lot of ways having each episode kind of focus on a single movie because it allows us to dig in and to kind of explore it in a lot of different ways and hopefully in ways that other people don't necessarily explore these movies. But it is fun even when we change it up because you can't uh, you can't subsist on a diet of one steady single thing. You have to kind of try different things or you never know what you might like. And this time around, I have to say, Harold Lloyd's The Kid Brother was a lot of fun. Let me remind you that if you want to get in touch with the podcast, with me or with anybody who's been on the show, please write us at thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'll be glad to hear from you. Any questions, comments, ideas, uh, throw them at us. Let us know what you think. And we'll be glad to hear from you. Uh, Coming up in the next few weeks, we've got uh, more 1940s universal horror goodness and a few more surprises uh, down around the road. I do, uh, I I can promise that we're going to be getting back to some of the weirder Euro trash stuff, some stuff that isn't normally talked about when you start talking about this kind of stuff and uh, some unexpected curveballs around the corner as well. And I promise that uh, we will get back to the margarita stuff. Like I say, next up is going to be the golden arrow as Mr. Hudson and I talked about briefly there in the show. Uh, That one's easy to get your hands on. Warner Archives has put that one out on Blu-ray, and it's not a pricey affair. I do wish that there had been some extras attached to it. It would be nice to hear some stories, if there are any, from Tab Hunter about working on this weird Arabian Nights movie in Italy in the uh, 1960s. Anyway, thank you once again for listening to the show. Please stay safe, come back here next time, and we will talk to you again as soon as we can. (laughs) 